Hi, I'm Michael, founder of Kawin, and this is The Windwire, where we hear stories from industry leaders about their transformative career moments, including deals that shaped entire companies. Joining me today is Brian O'Kelly, CEO and co-founder of Scope3, where he's driving the ad world towards a greener future. Brian is a seasoned builder of trailblazing companies. In 2007, he founded AppNexus and sold for $1.6 billion to AT&T in 2018. And the entire founding story happened out of spite. Before that, he was the CTO of Wright Media, was acquired by Yahoo for $680 million. Beyond his companies, Brian has shown a strong commitment to diversity in the tech industry, supporting transformative organizations like Girls Who Code and Moms First. I'm really excited to share our conversation because Brian reveals insights and stories from pivotal deals that shape the trajectory of the entire industry and show his big vision. He is someone who refuses to get blocked or compromise. And these are really tales of high stakes negotiations and relentless determination. He delves into the power of genuine relationships for sustainable success and pinpoints common pitfalls for leaders, sellers, and entrepreneurs. Prepare to be inspired by a visionary consistently ahead of the curve. Let's jump into the episode with Brian O'Kelly. Brian, welcome to The Windwire. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was super excited to chat with you. We met at a large dinner with a lot of people. Needless to say, you were running the table in some sense, and obviously have a lot of stories to tell in general from your background, whether it's about achievements you've made or even regrets that you have. So uh, so I knew we'd be getting more than we bargained for here, potentially. But uh, but look, on The Windwire, we interview leaders about a deal, in some cases too, that changed their career or company. I know you have a lot in the chamber, I'm sure. It's been multiple decades now. Without ruining the punchline, I know you have two. Um, why did you choose these two in general? What, what was so impactful about them? Well, I think as a as a founder, you know, I'm always trying to sell a vision um, and trying to trying to get people to to buy in. Um, but when you're talking about big, huge enterprise customers, I mean, there's a certain level of you know impossibility to getting somebody to work with you, and so. These two deals both involve convincing a massive organization to take a bet on a really small company with an unproven technology. And they both sort of highlight people are what matter in sales. Like it doesn't matter how big the company is. Like you've got to convince people to be on side, to be, uh, you know, aligned, find something that they want as much as you want. Um, and then, you know, work together to help a company succeed. So it's not like we think of selling sometimes as trying to convince someone of something um, and make them do something. And I always feel like, you know, that's the hardest kind of sale. The best kind of sale is to realize that you're actually on the same side of the table and you're trying to, you know, work together to achieve something. And both these deals are, are all those things. Sort of impossible, you know, tiny company to a big company where we ended up building relationships and partnerships that were way deeper than a sale. And both, by the way, ended up in my companies being acquired and owned by the companies I sold the product to. Yeah, not the worst outcome, certainly a long tail outcome, I'll say that much. But but the the general problem that you stated around how do you get someone to trust you, it's something that, I mean, I know pretty well right now, but I'd say it is certainly a problem that everyone deals with, uh, no matter how big you are. And so I think that's that's certainly instructive. Uh, I guess it, it would be helpful just to jump right in. I know that one of them was the earlier one, so maybe we'll go chronologically. But I think 
the first thing to do is it would be really helpful to set the scene. You know, where were you at? Where was the company at? What was the challenge you were trying to overcome at the time? Just really set the stage for, for who you are at the time and start taking us blow by blow. So in 2003, I joined a four-person startup called Right Media, which was an ad network. And uh, they asked me to build them an ad server that could choose which ad to serve to try to make more re revenue for the company. Um, and I asked a bunch of dumb questions and ended up with the idea that we should auction every ad to the highest bidder. Now, there were no bidders. We were, it was like basically our, our sales team bidding against each other. But this idea that the highest priced ad for every individual impression should win meant that we could do all kinds of real-time prediction. So if you sold a cost per click deal, and I sold a cost per conversion deal, which one should win? We'd have to predict whether yours was going to click times the cost of click more than mine for the cost of the like, conversion. So for, for instance, AOL back then was still a dial-up company. And they send you those really annoying CDs in the mail. And we were trying to get people to change their, like, you know, like their wireless or their, their like modem-based internet provider by showing them internet ads. AOL would pay us like $300 if we could get someone to switch. But like, it happens how often? Like 10 times a day, is someone going to like switch their access that way? But 10 times 300 is all. So that was kind of the idea behind Right Media. We'd also sort of turn that into an ad exchange where other companies, salespeople could bid into our inventory and vice versa. But this was like totally a French idea. Like this was something that the best real websites in the world wouldn't use. They're like, this is just some crazy auction thing only for the crappiest remnant inventory and only for like performance-based advertisers. You know, I remember all these big publishers like the New York Times being like, we'll never do this. Like we are not in the business of auctioning our ads. Like no way. We have these salespeople with great hair, you know, calling agencies like that's their job. Like we're not letting technology do this. So that's the background. Um, and I had talked to Microsoft. Microsoft back then was, you know, really one of the portals. Like this is back in the early days of the internet. So AOL had a portal. Yahoo was the biggest internet company in the world, bigger than Google um, and Microsoft. And so those four companies were really the internet at, at scale. And so for us to get any of them to use our technology would be huge. And so in 2005, we went to Bellevue where all the Microsoft ad people are. And we spent months trying to convince them to work with us. And we kind of hit a brick wall. They're like, you know, we're smarter than you. We're bigger than you. There's no way like Microsoft would ever work with a little startup like this. And then they offered us like $200 million to buy the company, to which we said, and then I was like, well, what are we going to do? Like the big publishers won't work with us. We've got to get into Yahoo or AOL. Um, so the CEO, I was the CTO of that company. The CEO of the company, Mike Walrath, had actually been to Yahoo to try to talk them into using the product and gotten nowhere. So I started networking around Yahoo. Um, there was a team in Burbank that did the search, like the overture business back then. There was a guy named John Heller who I got introduced to. Um, he was like really supportive. And I networked around this guy named Greg Coleman, who was a, both John and Greg are like legends in the industry, but at the time they weren't yet. Um, Greg was so kind and he got me into the team in Sunnyvale that was like the core, like they called it the pricing and yield management. team. There's a guy named Andy Atherton, who was the VP of the PYM group. And he was the guy. If they were going to do anything to change the ad sales process or tech, it was going to be Andy. 
you know, he's running a multi-billion dollar business. Like Yahoo is so far ahead of everybody else. They're doing yield management, which like no other internet company was. And so I had to get to Andy. He already talked to my boss and told him. No. So I get to him. You know, Greg asked him to take a meeting, get a meeting. I fly out there and I show up at Sunnyvale and his assistant comes down the stairs and says, I'm really sorry. Andy is double booked. He can't. I'm like, well, I just flew out from New York for this meeting. Can I wait? And she's like, I, yeah, you can wait, but he's not going to have any time. I'm like, whatever. Put me in a conference room. So I sit in the conference room for a few hours. And finally, at the end of the day, he sticks his head in, like literally around the corner and goes, hey, dude, you know, I don't have any time to meet with you. Like I already talked to your boss. Like I'm just not interested. I'm like, okay, well, what are you up to tomorrow? Like, can I come back? Just give me 30 minutes. He's like, I'm working from home tomorrow. I'm not even here. I'm like, great. What's your address? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, like, seriously, I'm coming to your house. He's like, uh, okay. So he lives in San Francisco somewhere. So the next day, I show up at his house. And you know, I sit down at his dining room table, and it's Andy here and this dude named Ryan Christensen next to him, who's just like number two. And I'm like, listen, like, so here's my thesis. I think I can auction ads and make better decisions between CPA and CPC ads. And you know, I think this could significantly increase yield. And Andy's like, not interested, won't work. We have this amazing prediction system. Like it, it works great. Ryan built it. He'll tell you you're wrong. And I look at Ryan. He goes, actually, I'm really curious how it works. And so Ryan has every right to say no. He's built their system. The idea that he would listen to me is amazing. We start having this great conversation. I start explaining how it works and what we do and how the pieces all fit together. And he's like, well, maybe we should test it. I was like, okay, let's do a test. And so I walk out of Andy's house in my rental car. I'm so excited. I start speeding on 101 I'm on my phone, you know, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm so late for my flight, like so late. I, I, I'm on the last flight, the four o'clock flight out of SFO. And as I'm like trying to tell the team about this meeting, highway cop, like a chips guy pulls me over on his motorcycle. And I'm like, oh my God, I just won this huge deal. I can't, I'm so sorry, officer. He's like, I'm going to give you, I, I won't give you a ticket if and only if you get out of your car right now, you lock your phone in the trunk. And so I'm still on it. I drop it in the trunk, slam the trunk closed, get back in. He's like, slow down. I don't get a ticket. It's like the most amazing part of the story, by the way. I roll into the airport, drop off the rental car, sprint to that monorail. And as I get to the second stop, I'm like, shit, my phone. I get off the monorail, go back, get back. I mean, where's my car go? I don't know. Get my phone somehow, sprint to the gate, dive into my seat, and end up in New York. And uh, well, that's just the beginning of this process because now I still have to get them to sign paper. So I have to go back to Sunnyvale. I go back again and again, meeting more and more people. Everyone's so skeptical. Like, how are we even get this startup's technology integrated into Yahoo? And so every meeting, I meet people and I just tell them, the story of how I invented this idea and what we do. And I start making these relationships. It's not just Ryan and Andy. It's all of these different people who want to see this startup succeed. And one time I said, like, why are you guys like so supportive? Like, I mean, it's really amazing that you I think it's great, but like what what is it that's why is this like so compelling? And they said, Well, you know, Brian, you show up here whenever we ask you to. You show up in flip-flops and ripped jeans, you know. You remind us of how Yahoo used to when we would like innovate and build stuff, you know, 
And, you know, we're all buttoned up in corporate and like you are so passionate and you have really good ideas. Um, so long story short, we end up doing this test. They put our tags on the page, we traffic some ads and it doesn't work. It does not produce positive yield. It actually isn't better than what they're doing, at least in this iteration. But because they were so convinced by the idea and so confident that we'd make it work, they signed the paperwork anyway. And they were so excited about the company that they signed a 40, they invested $40 million into, into Right Media based on that pilot, even though the pilot was a failure. And so to me, that's, you know, an amazing sales outcome, right? Like we built such trust in team and in the product and the vision didn't matter that the pilot was a failure. And they went on to buy the company like nine months later for $850 million. Um, John Heller went off to start Freewheel. Andy and Ryan started a startup and actually worked for me as part of my leadership team at AppNexus for years. Um, so really kind of amazing, deep connections built um, that I think wouldn't have happened. You know, obviously, I hadn't gone to Andy's house. Um, but I think more importantly, just being authentic and showing up and being honest about what we could do, what we couldn't do, and, and why this might be something that would be aligned with what Yahoo was trying to do, which was to you know, maximize revenue and innovate, even under the pressure of being the biggest internet company in the world. Well, first thought in general is, I think we could all probably use the reminder from that cop to lock our phones in the trunk of the car. Uh, not the worst thing for everybody, but um, but it's really interesting. I mean, you mentioned a lot of the companies that would in theory adopt this technology or this methodology of doing things refuse to, right? Like the New York Times. And so I'm guessing that meant that really you had a limited set of buyers that you could really go to to try to integrate with, to get them to be sort of the more trusted vendor. When you failed that pilot, obviously you put so much effort into it. Were there moments there that you thought, I'm screwed? Was there a specific kind of you know result or outcome that you all looked at a certain document and said, this is not going to go well, that you kind of thought this might be over? My recollection was that like we'd almost gone so much of the diligence process to get to the pilot was how would we install this? So all the meetings were like, what happens if the pilot succeeds? Like the, the conversations shifted from like doing a pilot to what would an implementation look like? And so many people were so like motivated for the problems we were going to help them solve. As an example, inside Yahoo, they had purple dollars because Yahoo's color was purple sure if it is anymore. But like Yahoo classifieds would have to bid against other advertisers. They made their internal team bid, but they wanted to bid on outcomes, not on clicks. And so they had a real internal problem for house ads that they wanted to solve. And so all these internal businesses were like, I can't wait till we get right media and integrate. So the fact that like the optimization of this little arbitrary pilot didn't work, like it almost was like, well, as long as you can make it work, it doesn't matter if this pilot succeeds. We weren't selling them like the optimization day. We were selling them like this vision for a solution. You know, we could explain to them why it would work when it was fully integrated. We had all the demand in there. You know, we tune the algorithms for Yahoo. Like, I think they believed that it would work. And, and that, <laughs> it's almost like the pilot was irrelevant. I never was like freaked out because if it didn't work and they wanted to see it work, like in a few weeks, we probably could have turned around an algorithm like they, they, they believed it. And our team was awesome. Like 
the people that I could bring in to, to work with them gave them that confidence. So it wasn't just me they're doing. It was a whole team of people who clearly knew what they were talking about. I don't need to uh, say something redundant, but we live in an era of pretty short attention spans. And that makes it such that most people's first instinct is to say, I want to see this working now. Right. Or I, and I want to give this to a customer now to have them see it work. And I think there's value in that too, with the freemium model and just being able to install something and it working. But you're talking about a completely different model, which is completely selling the vision and selling your knowledge about why their met current methods might not work and how yours might work and how that could actually pay off if you get those people emotionally invested in that outcome. Well, wait till you hear my next story. <laughs> well, okay. We'll, we'll get right to that then. Um, I guess just uh, one last question on that one is, you know, from like a takeaways and learnings perspective, obviously you started multiple companies since then. Um, what kinds of mistakes you made or things that you did right for the first time um, informed the way you thought about things in the future and, and, and are there ones that you think others could maybe learn from? Yeah. Well, I think the Microsoft experience I had right before that, at right, getting into Microsoft and getting stuck in the opposite. They never did a trial. They never did a pilot because we got pulled into this like, you know, almost like mine is bigger than yours. Like our tech is better than your tech. Like, you know, why, why should we work with a startup? We didn't get past the blockers. Like it was the complete opposite. Had they tested it, it would have worked. They were almost scared that it would work because the people at Microsoft at that time had put so much of their own internal reputations about what they had built. So if you look at Ryan, who had built it at Yahoo and was so humble about like, look, I want to do what's right. And if ours isn't the best, that's fine. Versus the Microsoft team who was like, look, you know, we'd rather use our own crappy thing than even try yours because it would make us look bad. How do you as a, as a salesperson or a founder identify that situation? How do you sell around it? How do you not get stuck into effectively a trap where you can't win? And that, that to me is some of it's luck, but I have a theory of butterflies, which is that on organizations like Yahoo, I had made tons of networking calls. I'd met with Greg and I'd met with John. I'd met with these guys. This wasn't my only shot at Yahoo. So part of this was having, you know, like they talk about in football or soccer, like enough shots on goal to actually get one in. Like nobody hits every shot. And at Microsoft, we'd gotten into one team, one shot, and hit a wall and we had nowhere else to go. So I think that's the lesson, the mistake of not going broad, not finding other people, not getting out of that like, you know, technical blocker, if you will. Um, that was the big difference between those two is <laughs> enough shots to find Ryan to be able to get in there and then do the part we're really good at with like, you know, building trust, authentic, delivering real solutions, all that. If you can't get past the door, you can't, you can't, you can't sell. You just can't. Or in your case, going into someone's home. That's what it takes, you know, but that's where Ryan was. Yeah, it's fair. Um, well, you know, obviously that ultimately led to Ray Media being acquired. So clearly a very successful outcome that I don't even need to ask you about what the impact of that deal was on the company at the end of the day. Now you've already teased it. Uh, you know, in 2007, I think you started AppNexus. And so just as you did for this Yahoo deal, talk to us a little bit about 
the journey up to that point and where you were and kind of where this next deal all starts? Yeah. So I started up Nexus because the day before the right media sale to Yahoo closed, I got fired um, because the founders and board of right media realized that they could take back all my invested equity, which at that point I wasn't very vested. And so it was heartbreaking in many ways. Um, kind of got ridden out of the deal, like all the, you know, articles and everything else. One of the biggest exits in New York startup history at that point. And it was all about the CEO, not about, and that hurt. I also lost a lot of money because I wasn't part of it. And it was my idea and my baby and all my relationships. And so I was just a wreck, you know, ended up in therapy trying to figure out what to do with my life because like it'd been ripped away from me at the last moment. And so my solution uh, to this was I'm going to start a company and I'm going to go reinvent the industry I started with a totally different mindset. I'm going to take this to all the companies that didn't work with us. I'm going to make this a mainstream technology. I'm going to finish what we started, basically. And so that was AppNexus. And, you know, one of my friends said to me at that time that I had a very balanced personality because I had a chip on both shoulders. And uh, let's just say that it was a frenzied, uh, like, period of my life trying to start that company. Because not only were we competing with biggest companies in the world, Google had bought DoubleClick for $3.3 billion in 2007. Yahoo bought Right Media. Microsoft bought a company called... Um, what was it called? Microsoft bought a Quantive for $6 billion or something. Oh, yeah, the, you know, a little baby company. Um, so, you know, a few deals, $10 billion of deals. So not just competing with like the biggest companies in the world, also competing with $10 billion of acquisitions. Um, that was fun. And I had like 18 people, you know, chip on my shoulders. So as we go through this process, we're desperately trying to figure out how to thread the needle to survive while we're competing with these companies. And ideally, we need one of them to work. So we ha- same, same thing. We have to get a big, massive scale partner. And so one of our investors was Ben Horowitz, who at that point was still working for HP before he and Mark Andreessen started A16Z. And I went to his office and I said, what do I do? Like, I'm stuck. There's all these competitors. I, I Everyone's getting venture money. How do I, I, I feel like I have to get Microsoft or AOL to do a deal with me, like, how do I do it? He says, well, it's no big deal. All you have to do is get the other one to do a deal with you first. And I was like, Ben, you just told me that I have to do two deals. And he was like, well, yeah, I mean, right. If you have competition, one of them will definitely do the deal. Like, you just made my job twice as hard. Like, that's basically impossible. He's like, yeah, but that's what you got to do. I'm like, thanks, Ben. So I fly back to New York and I start networking. And I find a guy who can get me into AOL. And I do the same playbook as with Yahoo. I network. I try to help them solve the problem. To Tim Armstrong, who's the CEO, I make this pitch, this big, beautiful boardroom table. I'm like, Tim, you've got to do a deal. You've raised bias. He goes, well, you know, I can't pay more than $100 million. And I'm like, okay, fine. Just buy us for $100 million. She's like, well, will this help me with agencies? I'm like, yes, Tim. It will help you with agencies. I promise. Like, it's literally the best thing you've ever done in your life. Got to do this deal with me. He's like, okay. So meanwhile, I've been talking to Microsoft for months. I can't get them to sign a deal. We've done this bake-off. We've lost the bake-off. We've been talking to their teams. We're all up in there. And I met a guy. So after all these really frustrating BD conversations where we just can't get them to take us seriously, you know, the corporate BD guy being like, thank you for talking to us. We will consider it. We will get back to you at some time. I finally bump into this guy in corp dev because we're starting to have these corp dev conversations. 
uh, named Dave O'Hara. He shows up at our office in Union Square in New York. And he, I bring him into our conference room. It's called Pooh, our conference room, because we had an employee vote. I think we were drunk. And we named them after Winnie the Pooh characters. So our conference rooms were like Eeyore, you know, Rabbit, and Pooh. Do not ever choose conference room names this way. And I start yelling at him. I don't know what's wrong with me. I was just like, I'm so frustrated with Microsoft. We have the best tech in the industry. I, the only person who knows how to build this at scale, I invented RTB, invented this industry. Like, you've got to work with me. And your BD people are so annoying. They won't even give me the time of day. I mean, just, just probably the worst sales pitch you've ever heard. Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, I know. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, no, I get it. He's like, look, I got acquired into Microsoft you know, a few years ago as part of the Great Plains acquisition. Like, that's our culture, but we can't win that way. I know we have a problem. We bought a quantum for bazillions of dollars. It's failing. You know, our, our, we're losing to Google. Like, thing is not working, you know, in the consumer world. Meanwhile, the Google double-click acquisition is going great. Like, strategically, if we don't find a way to stop Google from what they're doing, like, they're going to win. And he's like, look, I get what you're saying. Like, you guys are the only company with a vision big enough to actually take on this industry. He's like, how can I help? I'm like, well, I don't want you to buy us because you'll kill us. How can I help you use your assets to fight Google? Let me be your proxy to fight Google in display advertising while you guys focus on search. He's like, I like that. Let me bring you in to Chi Lu, who is the guy who runs the entire ads group, genius. Come to Bellevue, tell him this idea. Okay. So I get in an airplane. This is probably so, so I, this is all sort of happening in parallel. So there's this AOL conversation hopefully going to end in an acquisition. What I really wanted was this Microsoft conversation to happen. So I fly out to Microsoft. I meet this guy, Chi Lu. He's a total engineer. His office in Bellevue has the most beautiful view of Mount Rainier behind it. And I mentioned him like, wow, what great view. And he goes, huh? Oh yeah. I never noticed that before. Like, I mean, just the nerdiest of all nerds, which I might be as well. And we start having this sort of strategy conversation about like, what it would look like to keep Google from tipping the market. We start talking about tipping and, and, and how critical and important it is for somebody to step in who has critical mass. And I was like, look, if you could give me all your assets, you could give me MSN and you could give me, you know, like push of everything you're doing. It's a billion and a half dollar business. I can run it for you on this platform. He's like, yeah, I can see how that could work. I'm like, that's the only way you have a chance because your tech, they bought another little company for like $150 million. I'm like, those guys can't get it done. They're stuck in Microsoft, think. You need an independent. He's like, you're telling me I just paid a hundred something million dollars. I should use you instead? And I was like, yeah, you should use me instead. If you guys invested money and you put your entire like media on our platform, I could go take out. He's like, all right, let's talk. We start this conversation and we end up in a conference room on the top of this thing, me, Dave O'Hara, PD guy, a few other people, Aaron Easterly, and we just start sketching out what it looks like. What's crazy about this is I'm not selling to them anymore. We are jointly whiteboarding and planning out how AppNexus plus Microsoft could actually stop Google from winning in display advertising. We are literally on the same side of the table, all looking at the whiteboard. We have an Excel spreadsheet up. We're charting out economics that would work for them because the problem is on day one, they can't, 
we're not going to bring much value because I don't have a product, by the way, to sell them. I'm selling them the product I could build. On the flights back and forth, I'm literally building the things we're talking about. I'm writing code on the plane to be able to show them what we're talking about. Meanwhile, these, these spreadsheets are like, you know, they're looking at our economics and talking about how to make it work. So we chart out the foundations for this deal. But there's nothing driving them to a date. But get this term sheet from AOL to buy us for $100 million. I get an airplane. I show it to Dave. I say, I got a term sheet. Now, probably Microsoft people didn't know at the time is that Dave had told me a week before that the only way to get the deal done is if I showed up with a term sheet. So he's like, be great if you had a term sheet. I'm like begging Tim Armstrong for a term sheet to get the Microsoft deal done. But I have 10 days to get a Microsoft deal done. My board's like, otherwise we're taking this deal. And so we spend 10 days locked in this conference room, lawyers on the phone constantly. We're trying to get an investment round done and a commercial deal done. And the entire time, it's this incredible collaborative effort. And there's some contentious points, but I'm basically trying to get Microsoft to kingmake AppNexus as the foundation of this strategy. And so that to me was one of the most amazing experiences of having, you know, Jeff Green, who's now the multi-billionaire CEO of Trade Desk on my team to figure out how to do a deal. By the way, he ran the company that sold to Microsoft. He's putting his own team out of business. Aaron Easterly is the CEO of Rover, another public company CEO, you know, as sort of the technical architect of this team Microsoft had working on this deal. There's a guy who had to sign off who the head of engineering. And by the way, Microsoft does a partner on stuff like this. Like Microsoft builds their own. You heard me say just a few minutes ago how Microsoft wouldn't work with us at Red Media because we weren't Microsoft. The cultural difference of a Microsoft that acknowledges it can't win and the Microsoft that like refuses to talk to partners. The guy who has to sign his name on this deal on the tech side is named Satya Nadella. That mindset is what Satya's brought to Microsoft that's made it, you know, the biggest company in the world. So this deal is not just sponsored by people like Satya. Like it's this incredible elite team at Microsoft who's partnering. And this is to me like this moment. I mean, I don't think our deal had any impact on Microsoft in the like macro set, but the mindset the focus of Microsoft, knowing what it wants to invest in and where it wants to partner, is the Microsoft we see today. And so for me, you know, being a little part of that, you know, validating that Microsoft doesn't have to do everything and being an incredible partner to them, we delivered for them. We helped them save hundreds of millions of dollars outsourcing this chunk of their business. We did stop Google from dominating, although Google cheated and it's a bunch of like trust cases, you know, talking about some of the places where they didn't play fair. Now, they played fair a lot too, but like, it wasn't like it was easy to fight against Google. And Google eventually won. You know, we did not take over the internet. Nexus is not the household name I wish it were. But the, the point of the story is finding Dave, working with Dave, building these internal champions at the senior most levels of Microsoft fundamentally was what it took to get this deal done. And then I did go turn down Tim Armstrong. I did call Ben Horowitz and say, yeah, I got them both done. He's like, of course you did. I knew you would. Like, you know, thank you for that. But, but that to me is, um, you know, just everything you said a few minutes ago. You're like, it's how you just build this alignment and purpose around a vision of keeping Google from winning the internet. Like that was what got that deal done. Well, it's funny to me. I mean, there's so much to unpack from that. But one thing that really stands out to me is that in a lot of cases, 
vendors can almost be the enemy or partners can almost be the enemy. Not really because, you know, it's a waste of time, whatever it is, but change for a lot of people as the enemy, uh, at least in their minds of, you know, we'd rather just keep things the way they are on some level. And I almost feel like there's a part of this where you had to create this third party enemy of saying, no, 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 change isn't the enemy. We're not the enemy. Actually, it's Google, it's this other person. And they're more extreme than whatever it'll take to actually make a change or the money you have to part with. Yeah. Well, I mean, Google made themselves the enemy. I didn't have to invent Google, you know, but, but, but changing the, the key was instead of this being a search and select for we need a vendor to do this little thing, I changed the conversation to how do you choose a partner that can operate and think and deliver at a big enough scale to change the landscape, to tip the market toward Microsoft? That's an almost insane difference in conversation. Instead of being, which vendor, how do we partner? That was what made it all possible. And by the way, you know, guess who owns AppNexus? Microsoft. Now they didn't buy it first. AT&T bought it and they sold it to Microsoft, you know, but I think that partnership, end of the deal, I think we were doing 30 million a year of revenue from that deal with Microsoft. It's a huge client of ours and a huge partnership. We were doing hundreds of millions of revenue for them back. So I think it worked. Yeah. Well, I think what stands out to me as well is it is a lot easier or it feels a lot more straightforward to slot into that search and select, as you mentioned, because of course, you don't have to go define new requirements. You don't have to go reach for the stars, essentially. But it seems like one common theme among both of these situations that you described is a willingness, a desire, whatever it might be, to try to change that conversation and almost make something bigger than it is, as opposed to here's how easy it's going to be to be with us. Yeah. Yeah. And finding the right people who get that. And, and there's a, you know, one of my favorite books is Guy Kawasaki and it's called Selling the Dream. It's probably 40 years old now, um, 30 years old or something. But you know, it's this idea of evangelism, that you don't sell a product, you evangelize vision for the way the world might you know, this idea of like, hey, what if almost every ad on the internet were auctioned based on this like little idea I had in 2004? Well, guess what? That industry right now is a hundred or $120 billion industry. Like that idea, even though, again, AppNexus didn't win that market, the idea won. And so even though we were 20% of a hundred billion dollar market in the day, like the willingness to evangelize generous with the idea and to not try to own everything meant the idea became pervasive compelling thing um and that i think is is also a really key lesson here like this was a generous way to walk into my let me help you let's do this together you know we'll openly share our economics with you like we, you know, this isn't like gimme 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 this is like how does this how can we design something that would work for both of us um i think that's pretty pretty powerful and what happens when you close this deal? Does everyone celebrate, pop the champagne, or kind of what happens after? Well, it's pretty wild. Like we're a fifty-person company raising a fifty million dollar round, and you know, back in two thousand and ten, that was a huge round. Like that was just a completely different. Round. What happens is that every company in this space, this hyper-competitive space, has to work with us because we have an exclusive on Microsoft inventory, and so all of this competition goes almost immediately from a bunch of sort of well-funded startups to like. App Nexus and everybody else. And so a month, two months after the deal, I came into the office and Google had shut us off 
they had decided that we were so threatening, they were going to kick us off of their ad exchange. And it's the day before Cyber Monday. It's like the biggest advertising day of the year. And every hour we're down, clients are like leaving and they're going to our competitors. Like Google is willing to like take us out. And their claim was that we run an invalid creative, which is we run hundreds of thousands of creatives. Like the idea that they would turn off their biggest partner with us. And so we just go crazy. You know, I mean, you can imagine like our business, like every hour we're down. Like Yahoo won't work with us because legacy conflict. Now Google's turned us off. Like this is an existential moment. We scared Google so bad. They were willing to like go to the couches and take us out. And, you know, Michael Rubenstein, who is my partner in this business, like came from Google. He starts calling senior people. David Rosenblatt, who's one of our invested, calling senior people. Everyone's just making phone calls. Finally, it gets up to, I don't know if it was Eric Schmidt or Sergey and Larry, but some exec is like, guys, the antitrust, like we can't do this. And suddenly they turn it back on. And from that point forward, they're so nice to us. I've never felt like people were more under orders to be nice. You know, someone you can tell someone's like been required to be nice um, and they never shut us off again. But like, that's how we knew the deal worked. Like if you do a deal that's so compelling that Google comes after you at that level, like you're doing something. And we went from 50 people to about a thousand people in the next three or four years. Um, I may or may not have had a vendetta against Stripe Media and taken every single client from them, like literally every single client. And over time, we ended up being, you know, acquisitions and being a bigger and bigger company. Um, but it really all came down to, in so many ways, like not just the support of early investors and advisors like Dave and Ben and Mark, but also these champions, you know, people like Dave O'Hara who, you know, supported us or Green or Aaron Easterly or all these people who kind of saw the vision and supported me. Because remember, it was my first time as a CEO. You know, I'm like a CTO at heart and, and I hear him, you know, the support of all these people was the only way we could make the company work. And so you can see, call it sales. You can call it a lot of different things. But to me, it's like heart of deep relationships with people and delivering on what you promise. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting point and question there, which is, and I knew this was the case with you, of course, um, having met you, but I think a lot of people with that technical background that you have, you know, you were debating earlier, who's the bigger nerd, but don't necessarily pitch in the way you do or seem to kind of convey that, that same level of vision that you would expect only a salesperson who doesn't know any better to do. How do you kind of separate those two minds of the like realistic, I know how to do something and I know the problems with it, with the kind of pie in the sky vision that can really sell people? I think it's, you know, I think I would call it delivering vapor, right? Like there's like vision sale that like, you know, anybody can, like you can sell this big vision. The ability to deliver on what you say I think is the differentiator. Like the fact that I could say, oh my gosh, well, we can solve your brand safety problems, Microsoft. Here's what I'm thinking. They're like, okay, that sounds cool, but can you build it? On the plane back to New York, I can build it. I can talk so technically about it because I built the systems. Like there's a credibility to being able to actually deliver. I don't think you have to be like a hardcore coder, me, to be able to say, like, I deeply understand how these systems work. I have the power in my organization or influence to get resources committed. Because if you if you can't commit resources or you don't know how to get your product team to commit to do things, it doesn't matter what you sell. And then you're like left hanging and you your reputation gets hurt. I see this, you know, even at scope three where 
my co-founder, Anne, and I have these debates where I'm like, you know, I really need to know what I can sell and what I can't sell. Because if I start selling stuff, we can't actually deliver. Like, you know, we're going to disappoint really important clients. And, you know, it's constant debate because for me to do my best, I need to be able to both sell the dream and deliver the dream. And I think that's the key, whether you're actually coding it or not, is to be able to deliver what you're saying. And that credibility of being able to do that is, I think, why both these deals happen. At Yahoo, Pilot failed, but they believed that we could build it and fix it. You know, at Microsoft, they believed I could build a company and a platform that could actually solve Microsoft problems and be the foundations of the industry. So I think that's, I think that's the reason that technical background or that ability to actually deliver is so critically important. Clearly, you've been through multiple, I call them existential moments at these companies where you have a limited set of buyers that can have a massive impact and there are a lot of vicissitudes and ups and downs in between. What inspired you and continues to inspire you with Scope 3 today to continue building these companies, try to make them into behemoths, stick by through those more challenging moments and actually deliver on that vision? Well, I think a couple of things. One is that I feel like I've learned a lot over the years, you know, and I've, I've advised companies and I sit on the board and there's a lot of like, I take pleasure in like helping other people learn. Um, there's a difference in like being in the saddle and doing it and doing it with people you really care about and believe in, um, as a way to both hone that knowledge and, and get better, but also to like really do it with people. And I think that's the part that's most motivating and winning with a team. is just such an incredible feeling, you know, like when we win a deal, like everybody celebrates, everybody's a part of it. Um, I don't think there's anything in the world that feels the same as having an idea, building it, trying to sell it, getting the door slammed in your face, getting mad, you know, rebuilding it, getting back in there. You know, we lost a deal at scope three. We lost two deals this quarter and probably one Those two deals, I'm so mad. You know, I hope none of my competitors are listening to this because, you know, like, we are going to win those back and we're not going to lose deals like that again. We're going to learn from that. We're going to make our product better. We're going to make our marketing better. Everyone in the company is like, like there's nothing better than that feeling of losing to make you really hungry to make it better. And that feeling, that, that energy, that passion, that excitement, because what we're doing is trying to save the world, like trying to cut carbon and actually make the internet greener. Like there's a personal passion. Like I can go to my kids or my family and be like, you know, this is why I'm so passionate. I think we do better for the world and for our customers than any other competitor. And so I feel like I have an obligation to sell this the right way and get the team excited. Um, yeah, that passion, like you just don't get like, you know, I mean, you, you, maybe you do, but like advising somebody being like, Hey, I think you should do X, Y, Z. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't think I'd be a very good coach, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, you know, give me the hockey stick. Like, let me get out there and check some people, you know? Like there's something so awesome about it that I just love. And I would do it if I weren't getting paid because like, it's not about like, I want to get rich. It's about, I want to go, you know, have that feeling of winning together. Uh, well, it's really funny. I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people over the past few years, specifically some very veteran and tenured sales leaders, founders. And I think a lot of folks that I'd met maybe in 2021, 2022, kind of, hung up the sneakers for a little bit. 
And I met a lot of people who were advising or, you know, I don't know, not quite retired. Is, you know, they just were taking some time off. And a lot of those folks recently have started to get back in the game. And, you know, in talking to some of them, I think really it, it invalidates what you're saying, which is they thought it was over. They thought it was about the money. And then they realized at some point, you know what? Actually, I have enough, but that wasn't what it was about. And I'm missing the juice right now. I can't just advise. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's the, the great part about this industry. You know, there's always new challenges. I see the industry like building technology, you know, engaging with people. Um, yeah. So I, I, I love the impact and I love, the, I love the, the energy of it. And I think that's, you know, if you can t- tap into that as an early career salesperson or as a founder and just have that sense of like finding the meaning of helping people solve problems. Like it's not sales. It's a joint vision. It's a joint solution. It's doing something together. Like that just feels good. Like that, that motivates you in your regular life. Like that's the, that's the part that you can just find that becomes so much easier, better and more exciting. Even if it doesn't always work out, like you're doing it with that win-win, like let's do something together mindset. And it, and it just feels like community. Appreciate it. Well, I have a couple kind of final questions to wrap up here and then I want to give you a little platform to talk a little bit more about scope three. But, uh, you know, one thing that I've certainly, you know, one thing that we always love to ask folks who come on here is, you know, we talk about career defining experiences. You mentioned a lot of different people in your life, investors, advisors, customers, um, who are kind of one to two leaders or mentors that have had the most impact on your career and, and why? I think that you know, over the years, I've been so blessed with people who have, you know, come in as a coach or a mentor or whatever. Um, but my, my, my favorite mentor is actually someone who worked for me. I mentioned him before, Michael Rubenstein, president of AppNexus. And you know, he was coming from Google and DoubleClick and he, he'd been at these big companies. And I never realized he was coaching me. Like it took me a while to realize that the way he was responding to me was actually very gently nudging me toward better behavior. You know, as an example, like, I've got the best idea. We should do X, Y, Z. What do you think? And he'd be like, let me write that down in my notebook. I'm going to think about that overnight. Maybe in 48 hours, we can come talk about it. I want an answer now. Like, I'm so sure it's the right answer. The next day I'd walk in. He'd be like, hey, do you want to talk about that? I'm like, no, 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 no. It's a terrible idea. You're right. Everything you said was right. And he's like, I didn't say anything. I'm like, I, I get it. I get what you're trying to tell me. You're trying to tell me I need to think about things, write them down, and maybe like have a more organized presentation. But I didn't say that. But I think that's in, in a lot of ways the best kind of, of mentorship and coaching is that we can, through example and through interactions with people, help them see, almost mirror ways that we can be more consistent, more d- diplomatic, more thoughtful. Um, I learned so much from those interactions, even though it wasn't formally coaching or mentoring. It's something to remember. It's like those interactions teach people um, and we learn so much from it. I love that. Very unique approach to this question, of course, I would say. Just to finish up here, you know, outside of all the different commitments you have in general, I know that two of the things or one of the things really that you're super focused on right now um, is improving the industry. And that is advocating for diversity and you know a better industry in general and then of course building scope three which has a very specific mission um, around how 
it could affect the future. So wanted to give you a soapbox to talk about uh, both of those things a little bit and, and what you're up to now. Yeah. Well, I mean, scope three is what I spend the vast majority of my energy on. Um, because, well, one thing, like I feel like I built this massive programmatic industry, but it turns out it has kind of a dark environmental downside, which is all these real-time auctions, all this real-time prediction uses a ton of servers. And so a lot of that is unnecessary and wasteful. And so I realized that it's important to improve the world to like put a lens against that and say, here's the carbon footprint of every ad impression on the internet. And that opens up all these fascinating questions of like, how do you see through a supply chain? I mean, the advertising world is so complicated. Think about how many screens there are that have ads in so many places. I mean, so many surfaces, even like trying to see, to see the whole ad industry is almost. So like we're taking like an impossible first step of measure every ad in the world. And then we're trying to measure the supply chains of those ads and then try to get the biggest companies in the world to use our technology to actually, you know, measure and then reduce that. That's a, that's my size problem, you know, like massive in complexity and scope, incredibly important for the environment and lots of really positive side effects, like cleaning up some of the downsides of technology I invented. Um, so it's just a super juicy, fun, meaningful problem. And, uh, you know, we have a lot more work to do, but I feel like we've made a lot of progress in starting to do that measurement and to see real life reduction in carbon intensity of advertising. And so, yeah, it's just a, a super, super meaningful project. Yeah. And like everything else you've done in the past, I think there's an element of it that is so ambitious that only certain people could do it probably in the world. And, and I think based on your track record, you're one of those people who at least has that energy, the experience and uh, the breadth of vision potentially to make that happen. So uh, I think we're all glad you're doing that now. And that's what you're focused on. Thank you. I uh you know, feel daunted some days, but we have an amazing team. And that's the best part is it's not just me. It's a, it's a bunch of great people who share the vision and passion and maybe we can pull it off. I'm thrilled. I can't wait to see where it ends up and uh, really appreciate your time today on the podcast. I think people are really going to love this episode. So, so glad you invited me on and uh, can't wait to, to see you soon. Thanks as always for joining us on another episode of The Windwire. We'd appreciate it if you could share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, and rate us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Helps others discover the show and join our growing community. Our contact info is in the show notes, including our show email. You can see all episodes at thewindwire.com and then your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.